You're listening to Reckoning, the go-to resource for conversations about gender-based safety, survival, and resilience in the digital age. Reckoning is brought to you by Garbo. Garbo is on a mission to help proactively prevent harm in the digital age through technology, tools, and education. I'm Catherine Kosmetis, the founder and CEO of Garbo and your host for each episode. In the interest of safety, I want to provide a content warning for listeners as we do discuss some hard subjects on each episode, so please use your own discretion when listening. You can learn more about Garbo and our guests by visiting our website at www.garbo.io. Thank you so much for being here and listening to this episode. Ashley Rumschlag is the president and executive director of Teresa's Fund, which runs DomesticShelters.org. She originally joined the organization in 2017 as vice president of digital services after over a decade in the hospitality industry, where she focused on growing membership bases and leveraging technology to improve client experiences. Her work for the organization includes helping launch the Purple Ribbon Awards, creating a webinar series for domestic violence professionals and a Facebook group, and a variety of website enhancements for survivors. She is a trained domestic violence advocate and supports victims and survivors who reach out to DomesticShelters.org. For Ashley, the best part of working with this organization is the opportunity to solve problems that otherwise might not be solved for domestic violence survivors. Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation today about, you know, to really the, the nitty-gritty of domestic violence um, and, and highlight a lot of, of the work that you're doing over there. Yeah, thank you so much. It's such a, an important topic. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of news stories that are going on right now that are tying into domestic violence, but it never ends. It's it's something that so many are affected by. So really appreciate you taking the time to to give space to this topic. Of course. So can you tell us more about DomesticShelters.org and how it came to be uh, a part of Teresa's Fund? Sure, certainly. So Teresa's Fund is actually celebrating 30 years this year. It was started in 1992, uh, kind of as a, a family foundation uh, by the McMurray family to really just build capacity for domestic violence programs throughout the state of Arizona. So they raised millions and millions of dollars, helped uh, build more shelter beds, beds shelter space uh, and capacity. And, um, you know, they did that work for many, many years. And then in 2014, um, kind of really the organization took a big pivot and decided that there was some other things that, you know, other issues out there that weren't being solved. Um, and the one that they decided to tackle was this idea that there wasn't one place people could go online and find their domestic violence program. So, uh, they worked initially with NCADV to get the, get the things off the ground. And then since we've uh, kind of become our own entity. So in 2014, they took a pivot and launched DomesticShelters.org, uh, which was the, the website that helps people find the resources that they need. Um, and not only a searchable database, because we know that that's a really key part of what people were missing and looking for, uh, because many times they turn to Google, as they often do. And they would find, you know, the information they actually needed was kind of buried down it on the website. So buried down on the search results page. But 
Um, from there, we knew that we had to do more than just, uh, you know, create the searchable database. We had to create content. And so that's what Domestic Shelters does. We also provide educational opportunities for domestic violence victims and survivors, as well as domestic violence professionals. Uh, so we're really focusing on those core groups uh, to, to make a difference. It's It's so needed. And I think What's unique about what you guys have built is it comes from seeing a need, right? Seeing a hole in the space and filling that hole with something super, super valuable for individuals. And, you know, even when I was going through, which I'm still going through, my own experience, um, that domestic shelters was a resource I used, right? And I often refer people to it because it's so easy and transparent, et cetera, you know, for for folks to to utilize. So you know, for anyone who may not know, um, can you talk a little bit about what a domestic violence shelter is and, and what they offer for domestic violence victims? And, and so why would someone utilize um, your, your site and, and what would they get out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So as I kind of mentioned, we are an online resource. We don't provide any direct services. Uh, we really try to focus on that um, sector of education and helping people to find out, um, you know, what domestic violence is and that there is help out there. Uh, and so in that vein, we we all over and over again on the site, you'll see us recommending people to reach out to their local domestic violence program uh, or shelter. Uh, and so what what happens when someone, you know, recognizes that they're being abused and decide that it's time to make a change or just they want to reach out to someone and start to involve someone else in that process and open up about what's happening to them, um, they're gonna find well, an advocate. So a domestic violence advocate is someone that can help them to really uh, understand what what they're going through. They're you know someone that they can talk to, be open about experiences, uh, but then they're also going to be um, a great person to, to connect them with resources in their community. So it's going to be court, uh, you know, lay legal ex uh, assistance. It's going to be, um, you know, if they're experiencing financial hardship, what food banks are in the area, what housing assistance programs. So not only, you know, if they decide to go to an actual shelter and, and utilize the space uh, to live in for a short period of time, you know, it's not just that, though. If people are just looking for, you know, support services, they can reach out to domestic violence programs and they are really connected to the community and can make sure that a person has the help that they need to to take the next step that they they choose to take. And I think that's it is empowering that person with information and choices and say, you know, and I think that's a big thing about domestic violence is every situation, as you know, is so different, so unique, and we can't blanket you know, resources available to survivors. So giving them all of this information, this education and those local resources, I think is so critical. Yeah, you said it so well with that, the word empowering, because that's, that's really what they do, because you take someone that's just uh, completely stripped of all of the decision making in their life. Someone else is, is controlling every aspect of their life. And, you know, to give them back just a little bit of it at a time a little bit of of their control over their own lives, and so that's that's really what a domestic violence program is there to do, just to be that support system. That's great. And and what brought you into this this line of work? You know, it's it's very challenging. And so, you know, what keeps you in it? What makes it rewarding? What keeps you going as well? Yeah, it's it's definitely not something that I set out to do. I I have. Um, as you kind of shared in, in my bio, I have a background in hospitality um, and I was really looking for a space where I could, use, you know, 
just help people. And, um, you know, the more I started to unravel and unpack this issue of domestic violence, you know, there, there are so many causes out there that you can support and that you can work to help other people. But this was so unique in, in that it's so misunderstood uh, and it's so complicated in, in the way that it, um, you know, manifests itself in society that I knew that it was a, a really big challenge. And anyone that's experienced domestic violence like yourself, you know, you know that there's the big challenge of, of um, being believed even and believing it yourself. So there's there's so many obstacles. And so I saw it as a really big challenge to kind of enter this space and and work it for an organization that was solving solving issues that no one else had, you know, the resources to tackle yet. So, you know, there are a lot of other organizations out there too that do this work, but I really like the way that domestic shelters.org kind of leverages technology uh, and and things of that nature to to really solve issues that, you know, people need solved because it's it's a matter of life and death for so many people. So, uh, you know, just the importance of the issue, the the challenge of the complexities of it, those are things that kind of draw me in and, and keep it really challenging. And then, of course, you know, when you get those those emails and those calls and have those conversations like we had uh, several weeks ago, you know, when I hear the way that people use the resource, it's obviously so rewarding because I know that it's taking someone that, you know, because people don't, wake up knowing all about domestic violence you know they you know most people don't know anything about it until it's happening to them or years after it happened to them so uh, to be able to provide that resource is, is really rewarding that's amazing and and one thing that you said there is you know it's so misunderstood domestic violence and, and a lot of people tend to simplify it right the idea is often portrayed in the media of, of physical violence only you know it's often a man hitting a woman partner so I'm going to start off this conversation to level set things can you can you give us a brief definition or explanation of what is domestic violence at its core the by the book definition I'll do my best to recite it is it's a pattern of power and control uh, you know, a pattern of of someone exerting power and control over another person. Uh, it's it's as simple as that. So, like you said, it's it's typically portrayed as physical violence, and you know, even the term domestic violence is very misleading because, uh, you know, I prefer domestic abuse because it's more you know telling of abusive behaviors, which people can start to draw that line between the belittling and the gaslighting and the you know, verbal abuse, all those other types of abuse that are so, so pervasive and so effective, unfortunately, um, in keeping the power and control dynamic in the abuser's favor. I think that is like the most important definition of domestic violence is that is that power and control definition, right? We'll often hear different versions of, of what is domestic violence or domestic abuse, as you said, but it is about this pattern of power and control over another person. But what is, you know, I, I, I don't know if you watch Euphoria or these other shows that often like start to glamorize domestic violence where you hear uh, a lot of people throwing around, oh, he's a narcissist or it's love bombing or gaslighting. These terms that are very heavy to survivors who have ex really experienced these things, but they're kind of just being thrown around uh, very loosely now. So what is domestic violence not on the flip side? Or how is it being sensationalized even by the media? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think to me, you know, obviously the fact that people know those words and hopefully dig deeper to understand the actual definitions of gaslighting and 
and love bombing and things like that are really important. But I, I think that the real question is more so, like you said, it's what is domestic violence not? You know, but really what we want to make sure is that people recognize the subtleties of abuse uh, because what happens is people discount it. You know, our survivors and victims discount it. Their families and friends discount it. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things. I'd rather people think that they're being abused and, and realize that they're not because they're at least being aware and being, uh, you know, uh, kind of awake to what's happening to them um, versus, you know, feeling as though it's too... Uh, it, it doesn't apply to them um, because, you know, that's so so often the the kind of feedback you get from someone who's experiencing signs of abuse is that, you know, well, it's so much worse than what I, I say domestic violence is. Uh, so, for example, someone that is, you know, they just they go home and they just are uncomfortable around their, their partner or they, um, you know, just fear their partner. They feel like they're walking on eggshells. But he doesn't hit her or him, you know. So it's it's one of those things that people kind of start to discount it in their minds, and uh, you know they they decide that well it's not as bad as is the person that I saw on TV that was you know bloody to they bomb minimize and had to be, it absolutely yeah. yeah yeah it's always it's always not as bad as that other person, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of like online abuse and these other forms emotional abuse right come into play, which are domestic abuse, domestic violence. But I think we've taught to to say that, oh, that's not domestic abuse, right? Especially when you look at older generations and you're talking to them and they'll say, oh, you know, like, that's just life or how you have to deal with it. And it's like, no, this is domestic abuse. This is not good, you know? Yeah, and I think what that stems from is this idea that for so many decades, and I think we're still recovering from this, is that domestic violence was considered to be a family issue. It was something that was to be dealt with behind closed doors, and it was not not the responsibility of the community to step in, protect the person who was being abused. And so that, I think, really plays into the societal reaction of, of domestic abuse and what domestic you know, abuse and domestic violence are, um, are these, you know, years and decades and hundreds of you know centuries of, of people saying that, well, you know, if a husband hits a wife or a husband controls every aspect of a wife's um, you know life, that's just a family issue. That's just the way that their relationship is. And that's none of my business, which it could not be further from the truth, because uh, as as studies have shown, domestic violence costs, the, you know, I, I don't know the set offhand, so I don't want to get too far off, but, you know, it's in the billions of dollars every year of of costs and medical bills and lost productivity. So there is a co- there is a monetary cost to domestic violence that is experienced throughout the U.S. regardless of, you know, if someone's experiencing it themselves or if someone they, if it's someone that they know. So it's very pervasive. Hugely pervasive. And I was actually just chatting with someone yesterday and we were talking about how workplaces had the same opinion that domestic violence is a family issue. And if someone, you know, you background check someone before pre-employment, and they have a domestic violence charge on their record, oftentimes companies will just disregard that completely and say, that's a family issue. We don't, that's not ours to deal with. And we've seen this pattern that we know that people don't just commit bad acts, right? It's about power and control. And so how can these abusers assert power and control in other ways in the workplace, right? So you see sexual harassment happening. You see, you know, all of these other like fraud happening by, you know, by people who have to 
obtain this power and control over another person, over another company, etc. And so this idea that like domestic violence is just a family issue and we should not think about it in the context of society is crazy. But the ways in which society have framed domestic violence, especially in the media right now, is insane. Right. So I'm sure that you've seen the uh, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, or at least the clips on social media, which are just insane to me and the TikToks being created and all of these things are around this this defamation case, which I feel like has so many survivors quaking in their boots, like so scared to go forward because of what has happened and how media continues to portray survivors like what uh, how do you think that this is the media attention like you mentioned at least people know what love bombing is and gaslighting and they're finding these terms but on the flip side what is the bad side of the media you know and portraying domestic violence simultaneously yeah that's it's a really really tough subject to talk about because you know, we don't have all the facts. Like, a ruling hasn't been, you know, given by the judge. I think opening remarks are, you know, coming up soon, but or closing remarks. But what it does is just like you said, it 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 does two things, and one of them could be considered positive, and one of them is is very negative. Uh, the positive thing is, you know, because you know Johnny Depp is being seen as as being abused to some, it is emboldening um, male survivors who. Um, would otherwise not feel comfortable coming forward. So, you know, whether or not, you know, the, the truth of the facts and what are, are, you know, truly happened in that situation, that could potentially be a positive. Um, I have a hard time, you know, really, really saying that with a lot of confidence because, you know, the majority of people abused typically are women. And, and um, you know, there is a little concern on how that will be used by men um, who could potentially be the abuser. But uh, on the really obviously negative side of it it's just this idea the way that she is being dragged through the mud and being called crazy and being just tore apart her personality it's just you know i've seen we've seen many many survivors commenting we have we operate a, a facebook group uh, for survivors and that's really been one of the biggest kind of feedback according to that one that it's very triggering to watch those those clips but also that you know I just, you know, I, I don't want to come forward because I do not want to end up like that. I don't want my reputation and my my name being drugged through the mud. And I don't want to go through the trauma that she's going through of having to relive all the, the you know, horrific details of, of what she experienced only to be told that she wasn't, that didn't really happen and she's lying. So it's it's really tough. So there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it. We actually just commented on a an article, you know, on the the idea of mutual abuse, um, because that's another term that's being thrown out there a lot, and and really, it's something that it's hard to say it really exists because the whole idea that uh, domestic abuse is all about power and control over one individual. So it's really hard to kind of fathom this idea that both people would be holding power and control over each other because you know, logically that just isn't possible. So that's another term that is being thrown around and, and we really hope people will research them and and look into them to understand what they really are and not just, you know, make their own assumptions. You said so many great things there. And I think the one of it is, yeah, of, of survivors, like you said, being so scared to come forward, right? Like I have my own case, uh, civil suit case, and 
I have been doing a lot of reflecting based on what I've seen here. And it's like, oh, shit, like, this is not going to be fun, right? You know, I have a very challenging road ahead of me, um, not because of the case itself and the facts of the case. It's this portrayal by the media and outside observers and and the fact that I think a lot of like Darvo is being here, is being used here. And I think that's a term that a lot of people are not super familiar with. And so can you talk a little bit about what Darvo is and how it's used by abusers? To be honest, I don't know that that's something I'm super familiar with. Perhaps you can fill me in a little bit more. Yeah. So this is this is a really interesting strategy. So it stands for it's Darvo and it stands for deny, attack and reverse victim and offender. So you're going to deny the fact that it ever happened straight out, right? We see this. You, you see there's the Trump uses this tactic, right? A bunch of offenders use this t- tactic. And then you're going to attack them, right? Attack their character, attack their stories, their truthfulness, anything. Which in the head of if successful, it reverses the victim and offender. Now they're the bad person. And this, I think, where you start to get that mutual abuse coming in is like, no, she triggered him or she did it too, you know, and they're reversing the order of it. And it's this tactic that's used by abusers. I swear they all have like a same playbook. I like, that's what I say is like, they, I don't know, stumble across this playbook and I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, you know, and it's going to be darboing someone. And I just see it so much in the horse and pony show of the trial. Right. You see the clips of the laughing and the snickering remarks and the winking and the weren't there like alpacas out front at what well, I don't know. I can't keep up with all of this like uh, facade, this, you know, this darkening like methodology at its extreme. Like I've never seen it done to this length. And it's crazy to me that people are again, we don't know the facts, all of the facts. We don't have a ruling on the case, et cetera. But the fact that it's being manipulated on social media so much and these clips, et cetera. I'm like, it's just crazy to me. It's just crazy. Yeah. And to your point about uh, the the abuser playbook, that's one of the things that is really important to talk about is that these tactics that you somehow, they seem to all fi- find out about it, but those that didn't are not like, oh, this is a really good idea. And they're, you know, taking this, this idea of, of what did, what Johnny Depp is, doing or you know allegedly doing because obviously you know we don't know all the facts and you know what the actual realities of what happened are but um you know that's that's really big and there's so many issues with the court system and domestic violence not to veer off in a different direction but there's this idea um in the child custody courts so not just in just you know the civil laws civil courts but also in the family courts where abusers will claim this thing called parental alienation that has been debunked by all the experts it's not a not a um, actual diagnosis and it will the second that a woman accuses the the father of being an abuser they their lawyer lawyer will sometimes use parental alienation theory to discredit her and to basically end up you know even though there's evidence of abuse he will walk away with the children because she is alienating them from their father she is manipulating the children it it's just not true but it works and so people use it over and over again so there are a lot of these little 
workarounds, strategies, what, what have you, that, you know, people are well aware of, you know, especially the attorneys that represent abusers. And it's just, it's really disheartening because in the end, no one wins, you know, because the, the abuser is going to just keep abusing. They're never going to be happy with, with the, you know, what they're after. It's never like, an, there's no end game for them. And, you know, the survivor ends up with no, they lose their children. Or in this case, if there's no children, they kind of lose their reputation. So it's just, it's really, really disheartening to watch. It is. But how do we how do we flip it, right? How do we use our voices as people who know domestic violence deeply um, uh, to to shift this narrative um, in in public perception? Is it conversations like this? Is it um, you know publishing all of the content that you guys publish to to try and bring transparency to it? How do we use this moment to change the conversation? Yeah, I think what it really comes down to, and it, it seems so simple, but it's just it's the education piece. And that, and that's really, you know, I say that because that's really where we we try to focus, because when people really understand the true definition of love bombing, mutual abuse, you know, all the gaslighting, all these different terms, and they really start to unpack what is domestic violence and why didn't she just leave? Th- you know, those kinds of questions that are on people's minds instead of making an assumption and and using the age-old thing of, well, if it were me, you know, I would have done X, Y, and Z. Well, it wasn't you, and you never know what you're going to do in a specific situation. Um, so the more people can just talk about it and be open to, you know, that maybe their perceptions and their assumptions are not correct, I think it's really important. I don't, I don't think it's necessary for all the onus to go on on survivors to to carry that torch because they're already carrying so much trauma. But of course, it helps um, when people can you know, have those people in their life that are have experienced domestic violence and survived, you know, break down those stigmas of saying, oh, I would have never thought this would have happened to you. You're so tough. You're so strong. How, you know, how could you have let this happen to you? Instead, reframe that conversation of, you know, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And that must have been really tough, you know. So knowing how to have those conversations with with people who have experienced abuse. But, you know, the that uh, interaction and that realization is really powerful when you have someone that you would have never expected, you know, come forward. So, yeah, it's just it's just the, you know, we talk about having conversations, things like that. That's kind of a little bit overused in terms of like how we solve an issue. But it, it really when you start to break down the the misconceptions and understandings, you know, for me working in this in this field, you know, it's really easy for me to catch those things. But it's just a matter of time for everyone else to kind of bring bring themselves up to speed. So let's dive into some of those misconceptions about domestic violence. And you said the the one, the the dreaded question that every survivor gets asked many times, I think, is why didn't you just leave if it was so bad? Or, you know, um, you could have just left at any points and stuff. So what's what's wrong with this question and why can't survivors just like leave or break up or run away from from their experiences yeah we we have an article on our website that's just 50 barriers and i know there are so many more so i'll just speak to some of the more more po- common ones uh which are i would say the number one and and 99 of people who've experienced domestic violence experience financial abuse so what that may look like many different things that's not just you know stealing money or things like that. It's also taking out credit cards in people's names, sabotaging them from getting an education so they can get a job, sabotaging them from having a job. So all these different uh, aspects of financial abuse. But when it comes down to it, the victim does not have any money 
where are they going to go? You know, some can go, you know, go to a domestic violence program, but where can they go from there? So there's there's uh, this aspect of, you know, if, if she does not have any money, she is completely powerless. And that's why it's such an effective tactic. So definitely the the, the lack of financial resources is a big one. Another is if there are children involved, you know, where are my children going to go? Where, you know, they're in a school here. I'm not going to uproot them from from their school and their friends and, and cause them more trauma, you know, to go live in our car for a month until we figure stuff out. So it's the, you know, children involved as well. And, you know, it's also, you know, she loves him or he loves her or, you know, he, he loves him. It's just, it's, it also comes down to this idea that it's really tough to walk away from someone that you're convinced loves you, even though maybe they don't, they don't show it. Um, so it's really hard to kind of process that and to kind of accept the fact that the person that you've dedicated so much of your your emotional effort towards is actually abusing you. So it's really hard to accept. So those are just three that popped up and, and maybe there's more that we can unpack as well. But um, it's just there are so many different obstacles that that come come forward. I love that you have the like 50 plus barriers because I think that is it's never ending, right? It's never ending the reasons why someone can't can't leave. And we know that it takes, you know, I think the statistic is, you know, seven attempts to leave, right? So it's not like, you know, they sit around and like, oh, one day I'm gonna make the leap. No. Even in my own situation, tried to leave many, many times before I able was to, was able to finally escape the situation. And so it's it's not easy, right? And domestic violence is not, is like you said, it's complicated, it's nuanced, et cetera. And so when you think about the things in which we tell survivors or just victims, even if they're still experiencing uh, domestic violence, what are some like questions or things you should, if, if someone in your life, say, is experiencing domestic violence and you want to help them, what are some things that you should do and say? And what are some things that you should not do or say? But the advice that I give to anyone that knows someone's experience abuse and the advice that I follow um, is very simple. It's to, to listen without judgment. Um, and the reason that is so important is because they are constantly being told they are not good enough. They are constantly being told that they always mess up, that they are worthless and no one will ever love them. You know, being torn tore down um, over and over again. And one of the most um, effective tactics of abusers is isolation. That's key in, in abusers. And so if you can just listen without judgment and don't give up on them, it's so hard and it's so frustrating. And they will make you want to pull your hair up because you're like, why does she keep doing that? You know, it's, it's just... It's just the nature of it. And if you can be that one person that can be strong enough and to not walk away, even if, you know, even if, you know, they disconnect from you because of the isolation, continuing to reach out any way that you can just to say, hey, I'm here for you. I hope you're okay. Tell them how wonderful they are, how much you love them. And that really will make a difference. So, you know, that's the biggest advice I can give. And, and you know, kind of on the contrary to that is to get frustrated with them and get mad at them and yell at them and and try to, you know, uh, give them tough love. That's another thing I hear people say is like, I, I cut them off. I'm just I can't handle, you know, them doing this anymore. And it's just like that's the, the abuser is winning in that moment when you decide that you can no longer 
do it anymore. And and it's okay to take breaks and to give yourself space from it for a little bit, but always come back. And we have, we've written many articles on this topic about, you know, how do you best support someone who's experiencing abuse? Because it's, it's so important that you do. Uh, it's so important that you don't give up and you don't blame them. You don't shame them. You don't make them feel as though they're doing anything wrong or that it's in any way their fault, because that's another thing. They're beating themselves up thinking, this is 100% my fault. I, I attract this this person. I'm the one that's still here. And to have someone else, you know, tell them that that's not true is is a game changer in, in many cases. Having someone believe you, even though the situation often seems unbelievable, right? Like you can't believe this is happening to you or to someone else, you know? And then it's like, no, when you finally tell someone that person just like you said, just listening and believing and, you know, not, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in working with victims and survivors, and it came from Eva Galfrin, our conversation, which is on season one of the podcast, um, which is, the title was, What Does Justice Really Look Like? And she said, just ask the survivor what justice looks like. What do they want? Like, don't say, Oh, you should call a hotline. You should go to the shelter. Hey, you know, let's midnight move you. It's like, just stop and ask them, like, what do you need? What do you want to happen? You know, I think is a huge step. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad that you you reiterated that because, you know, like I said, we we really encourage people to reach out to their domestic violence program. And even if they don't, um, you know, t- uh, go to the shelter, that's still a step, you know, something that's available to them. But we realized that so many people never call those hotlines, never reach out. And, you know, we try to create that space where those people who will never take those steps can get the information they need without having to talk to someone. And so that's really, um, you know, one of the key play- things that we try to accomplish is, you know, we, we, we encourage people to reach out to people because we know that having that support is helpful. But we also do not, you know, kind of discount this this person that's not going to do that because there's there's a different journey for every single person and they need to be able to be supported uh, regardless of their capabilities, their their comfortableness with, with talking to people. Because um, in the end, it's all about helping people find safety and 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 rebuild their lives and, and be happy. So um, that's really what we're all about. That's amazing. And and I and again, that's why I love the resource that you have is because calling a hotline is very intimidating, you know, admitting or even telling your friend is very scary of what's actually happening to you. And so being able to just kind of have something where you can read in your own time, in your own space without having to talk to someone and get that information versus those barriers, right? There used to be so many barriers to domestic violence resources and education that by dropping those, we're saying, hey, we should all be learning about what domestic violence is, what the early warning signs are, what a healthy relationship and a not healthy relationship is. And so, you know, as 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 someone from the outside who who might think that their friend or family member is experiencing domestic violence or even someone who is in those early stages where, right, I, I say domestic violence never starts with someone just punching you in the face, right? Like that just doesn't happen. That's not reality. Uh, it starts with, you know, small little patterns, like you said, of power and control and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing boundaries. And so what are some of those early kind of warning signs of domestic violence or early forms of domestic abuse that that folks can keep an eye out for? 
Yes. Yeah, that's really important because the the longer you stay in the relationship, the harder it is to leave, not just because of your own will, but because of the way that you've been manipulated and, you know, your lack of agency over your whole, your own life. Um, but it's really important to, um, like you said, it's, it's going to start off with a... A wonderful relationship. They're going to be Prince Charming. They're going to love all the same things that you love. And they're going to, you know, take you out for these, you know, wonderful dinners. And they're going to just be Prince Charming. Um, but then what happens is, you know, I, I talked about isolation. And I think that's a really big thing to to bring up is, you know, they start to say, you know what, you talk to your mom too much on the phone, or does your sister really need to stop over here? You should, you know, you should tell her not to stop over. So those little things to kind of start to separate you from the people in your life that are your support system. Um, but also just the, listen to the way that they talk to you. Um, you know, do, do they support what you're doing? Or are they constantly tearing you down and, and not really, you know, telling you that you're, you're good enough, um, you know, regardless if you already have kind of some self-esteem issues. But, um, you know, that is a really big indicator. But one thing I always just kind of say, and, and so many people say after the fact, is that I should have trusted my gut. I knew something was wrong and I didn't, you know, didn't act on it. So it's really just, you know, you can kind of look at all the individual red flags and, and break them down. And obviously we have listed those on, on, on domesticshelters.org. But it's really just, do you get to something does not feel right? And are you afraid of this person? Do you feel like you're walking on eggshells? Do you feel like this person is, um, you know, you have to constantly change who you are to, to please this person? So really just maybe less about what they're doing externally, but how you feel internally when you're around this person um, to really help you determine if something's that right. And then from there, yeah, definitely, if, if any of those, you know, spidey senses are tingling on that, go, you know, go to the internet, obviously, you know, domestic shelters.org has a lot of articles about helping you recognize, you know, what you're experiencing, but just start to, to unpack it a little bit more. Talk to someone, keep a journal. That's another really big thing. Write down the things that that pique your interest because over time, one they'll become fuzzy and and you'll start to make excuses for that. You'll start to say, well, it was this, this, and this. But if you keep a running list of all the things that they do that kind of you're not okay with or that kind of raise some red flags, you see them all at once and it's a lot easier to say, okay, I need to make a change and, and this is this is not healthy. I often say, you know, you can't see red flags when you're wearing rose-colored glasses, right? When you're in the midst of it. And I think it's so powerful what you said, which is it's less about what they're doing and more about how you're feeling. That's very powerful, right? That reversal of like, hey, they could be doing, you know, things that society has normalized, for example, but you don't feel okay with that. That is, that you should act on that gut feeling, right? And like, I would say it's like just because it's not an abusive relationship doesn't mean it's a healthy relationship, right? It's, it's a spectrum. And so it can be a toxic relationship where it's just not healthy. It's not productive. It's, you know, it's, it's starting to veer off on a, on a potentially bad path. And so we, we try, like we have quizzes on our site as well about, you know, early morning signs and early red flags of a relationship and things like that. So you don't, like you said, the heart, the longer you're in it, the harder it is to, to get out of it. And as we kind of wrap up this conversation today, that's, that's what I want to end on is what's after. What's next after you experience domestic violence? When you utilize the resource and go to the shelter, like 
What inspiring message can we leave to victims and survivors uh, who are facing domestic violence? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of start with this idea that there are, you know, you are not alone uh, by any means. I mean, one in one in three, one in four, depending on what stats you kind of look at, uh, people or women are experiencing domestic abuse and one in four, one in seven men, depending on where you look. So it is very, very common. It is happening a lot. So one, you know, if you've gone through this, you know, experiencing abuse and you are on the other side, you are, you know, in a, in a space where you feel safe, uh, again, you know, know that there are others out there. And I really think it's important to talk about and make sure people recognize that they've experienced trauma. You know, trauma, even if you were just, you know, not just, but if even if like, you didn't go to the hospital with a you know broken nose, broken bone. You know there was no physical altercation that you know things that people would say were traumatic. Just living with someone who is exerting power and control over you for you know months, years, decades—that is trauma, and that is deeply ingrained in your body. The best way to heal is to acknowledge that trauma and to seek out you know different ways to to address that. So, you know, people obviously think of talk therapy. There's um, so many different ways that people can, um, you know, address the trauma that they've experienced. But it's really important that people acknowledge it um, so that they can um, start to move forward. Because if you do not acknowledge it and do not address it and do not do anything about it, the abuser will continue to win because they will, without you even maybe even knowing will be still controlling you through the trauma that they gave you. That just gave me chills. Ugh, yeah, so powerful, so necessary. So such an inspiring message, I think, to to those who have experienced domestic violence or to those who know someone who has and allowing that survivor to have space and and take up space and process and not shove it down and, and forget about it. You know, move on. You're beyond that. Oh, you escaped. You know, it's like, no, listen and heal and begin again. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's definitely, you know, a lot of work to be done and it, it's not something that happens overnight. So give it time too. And don't, don't compare your journey to anyone else's. You know, if you maybe read a survivor story and it took them three years to go back and be able to heal what they were experiencing it may take you 10 so don't don't compare your experience to other people because everyone's so different so it's really important that you know you give it the time that you need well thank you so much for this this important conversation dissecting the nuances of domestic abuse uh and the ways in which media portrays it and how we can help those survivors uh in our own lives so thank you so much for your time today ashley yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed in this episode or about our guest, visit our website at www.garbo.io. Now available, Garbo's new kind of online background check makes it easy to see if someone in your life has a history of causing harm while balancing privacy and protection in the digital age. This episode was produced by Imani Nichols with Whisper and Mutter, and I'm Catherine Kosmetis, and I look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Reckoning.